Welcome into this week's edition of AWA Unleashed. My name is Chris Tubbs, and I want to thank you guys for checking out the project, uh, whether you're on YouTube, watching us right now, uh, whether you're on uh, any of your uh, audio uh, platforms, whether it's, uh, you know, Google or Apple or iTunes or Spotify or Pandora, whatever. Uh, thank you guys for checking out the project. Uh, we are all about the AWA here the old American wrestling association. And for those that have followed us throughout the uh, first three and a half, four months, thank you very much. Uh, really do appreciate it. We've got a very special project and a, and a very interesting topic that we're going to get to here in uh, a little bit. But before we do, I'm going to go ahead and bring in the guys that really make the show go. And, and that's um, Mick Karch and George Shire and, Guys, before we get into it, um, again, just want to continue to say thank you to uh, everybody that's been supporting us. The The response continues still to be very, very positive, and, and I'm, I'm really happy that people have checked it out, and a lot of people have stayed with it, and that's, that's kind of hard to do. And so what you guys are doing, it's definitely working. So I, I want to thank you guys first and foremost. Uh, George, why don't you go? Hey, thank you too, Chris. You know, everybody that I hear from, they're waiting for Tuesdays for our show to drop. And the response that I get, I see it on my pages. I get uh, private messages. I even get emails. And they're saying that this is a highlight of their week. They're looking forward to it. They can't wait till next week. We get a lot of good ideas, some uh, ideas for future shows. But I like the response. And it makes me feel good because... We're doing this out of the love we have for this business and also our love for our own AWA. And so when the fans are giving us the positive feedback, yeah, it's exciting. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad we can be part of your week. I mean, that, that's compliments, you know, that uh, you're looking forward to hearing from Karch and I, of all people, on your Tuesday afternoon. Um, God bless you, and we hope we continue to entertain you and, and give you information. And I, I absolutely echo everything that George said response continues to be great the emails the the private messages a lot of great ideas uh and to george's point if people are out there and they are actually looking forward to listening to us a get a life <laughs> dude but, you're supposed to put the project over not marry it Get what that. the hell are you doing? I get that. What I'm saying is, <laughs> look at the two people they're listening to and looking forward to. But, <laughs> but you know, in all seriousness, uh, the the emails, the compliments are so great. And, and Chris, do not shortchange yourself. You exactly. are a part of this. You make it go. You're stirring the drink, buddy. And uh, you know, everybody out there, hats off to Chris mm -hmm. Tubbs. Couldn't do it without him. And I have to echo that again. I know, Chris, you take you take a back seat and you under you underscore yourself and your uh, accomplishments here sometimes, giving us all the credit. But seriously, we can't do this without you. We need you because I move a mouse and my computer blows up. And I know <laughs> Karch isn't much better. So we got to have you, man. We love you and thank you for being our director. Without you... We're just two guys lost in the world. Well, let me put for you guys today. I'm drinking a non-alcoholic uh, lift bridge, oh, by the way. Time. Is it it's carpet a, stain free? 
No, this is a mini donut cream soda. I know I actually opened it up before we started the show because, you know, I'm more than just a pretty face. I, I learned from that. Uh do want to thank Liftbridge Brewery, by the way, because they've got absolutely the uh, the best beer. They are the official beer, the official brewery of uh, AWA Unleashed. Uh, check out their website. They've got some really cool swag, liftbridgebrewery.com. I uh, want to thank them for uh, becoming a a part of the uh, the project you can see right up there. Oh, yay, Magic and Graphics. Uh, right up there, the uh, Liftbridge Brewery. Check them out. And uh, thanks to them, we're going to be doing a show out there uh, on uh, June 11th before the Midwest um, All-Star Wrestling show that's going to kick off at 3.30. Taproom opens at noon. Our show is going to kick off at 2. We're going to be doing some trivia. We're going to be having some giveaways. Uh, we might have a couple of things that are in the works that I'm waiting to get uh, confirmation on, but as they would say, the, uh, the, the ball is in, uh, is in motion. So uh, check it out. If you want to drink booze, that's great. But if you don't want to bring drink booze uh, there, it is as well. It's a mini donut cream soda. It's, it's really good by the way. Um, the uh, tickets are, uh, we'll bring the tickets, uh, the link a little bit later. And uh, also soda stick.com. Um, they've got uh, Minnesota, type swag mick you've got the hat uh i've got the skull hat and i'm not even gonna say anything i'm just gonna leave it there uh, because i don't want to spoil it you guys right. but uh, i think you kind of know where i'm going with it i i think i've kind of told you guys about it but i don't want to say anything not till uh not till we get the final approval not till we get the final approval i've got a big announcement you guys big announcement SodaStickCO.com. If you want to get some swag, uh, anything Minnesota sports related, use the code Unleash for fifteen percent off. Landon, Tom, everybody at um, um, at SodaStick, fabulous, fabulous people. I'm so excited to have SodaStick and Liftbridge on board. All right, now that all of the uh, the plugs are out of the way, um, let's get to the the serious <laughs> stuff here. A few weeks ago we were casually kicking around some topics and George, I'm going to give you credit for this one because this was one that you brought up and I thought it was interesting and it's a little more sensitive in today's day and age. And that's how black wrestlers were booked in the AWA. Now we're going to look at it through the lens of how things were. And I want to make this perfectly clear to everybody before we get started. This is about how things were. This is not us giving a, a, a personal take on how things are in today's very um, sensitive day and age when it comes to race relations. So we're talking about how they were booked by Vern Gagne back in the uh, AWA. And guys, I think along with how they were talked about, by fellow wrestlers, how they were talked about by fans, how they were talked about by broadcasters, because there were words and terms that were used back then that may have been acceptable that are not acceptable nowadays. So I just want to make that uh, perfectly clear. We're also going to show some programs that may have, uh, you know, they, they may have some wording on there. Just again, this is all about how it used to be. But uh, that being said, enough of me rambling. Uh, George, again, this was your topic. I thought it was a really great idea. Um, so why don't you go ahead and, and set the table before we start to get into a lot of the talent that made their way through the 
through the promotion. Thanks, Chris. You know, Mick and I, we're older, as some people know, and we've had the, uh, the honor, the pleasure to see so many things in our world uh, during the 50s as kids, then 60s as teenagers, and obviously into the 70s and forward. And we've seen our world change. We've seen good and bad. I thought about the black wrestlers, and this is exactly where we're going to go with this. You know, I remember hearing first time about Rosa Parks giving, you know, being forced to give up her seat to a white guy on the bus in December of 1955. And even as a kid, I thought that was awful. It just didn't make any sense to me. And that she was jailed for violating the city's uh, civil rights or whatever it was. And, you know, then we, we, we continued to grow up and we, we heard about the riots and things that were going on in the 60s. And Martin Luther King uh, being killed in April of 1968 and always fighting for equality. And it, it's something that's very important to me because I live, in, at least I do, I live in a simple world where I think all of us are born equal. It isn't a matter of what color skin we are or where we come from. We should all be able to be treated as equal and equally be as important as the guy next to me. And so I started looking at old programs and I realized that back in the 50s and 60s in the South, how different it was for uh, black wrestlers in that era. And the fact that when a, a fan would go to the arena, if they were a black fan, they couldn't sit on the main floor of the arena. They had to be relegated to the balcony, segregated away, and they, they had to have special places. And I, and I read about how the black wrestlers couldn't be in the same locker room with the white wrestlers. And I'm like, what? This isn't fair. This isn't good. But this is the way it was. And even weirder, when a black wrestler was on a card, he had to wrestle against a black wrestler. They wouldn't, they wouldn't match up white and black. Even as a kid, I thought that was so awful. It was weird. It was strange, but that's the way it was. And it wasn't until, you know, later on that we started to get a little bit more open-minded, thank God. We had instances where, uh, the black wrestler could be on the card, but he couldn't come out and be part of the, the, the fans or be with the fans. So thank God we switched and, and we've moved forward. But then I got to think about the AWA. And I thought, you know, from 1960 at the inception of the company, I started looking at the way Vern Gagne and Wally Carbo, mm -hmm. the promoters, the owners of the, of the company, how they handled black wrestlers. And I was delighted in the fact that most of the time, wow, when we were lucky enough to have one of the black wrestlers that were prominent in the business, they could come into the AWA and it, from all appearances, they were treated as equals. But we've got some stories. I know Mick's got a couple yeah. and I've got a couple where we're going to share some personal things. But we had some talent that came through here and Vern and Wally all, always uh, – treated them well. So with that, Chris, I know you're going to probably give us some direction here and we'll go from there. Well, I, I've got some questions that I want to ask when it comes to 
you know, black wrestlers and, and minorities in, in general, because I'm sure if I'm thinking it, there might be other people that are thinking it. But uh, Mick, why don't you just kind of, you know, piggyback off of George's thoughts and and kind of the whole reason of why we're doing the show? Well, you, you know, I, I think George brought up a very good point. First of all, it's hard to believe that we lived through what we did. Um, and it's even harder to believe that it still goes on today. Um, now, at least there's somewhat of a spotlight shining on it. So if there's injustice and wrongdoing, a lot of times the cell phone camera will catch it. Uh, but yeah, we lived through it. The thing that I would, would say absolutely, if you look back on wrestling history, the way that the AWA and Vern Gagne and Wally Carbo treated the, the black wrestlers as opposed to the way they were treated in some other areas of the country, I think it was just a, it, it was a microcosm of the way the United States was basically dealing with race relations. It was a carryover. If you look at some of the programs, I know we're going to see, uh, you know, if a black wrestler was booked on a show, he was identified in the program as Negro star. Well, why wouldn't you say, you know, big white star, you know, big Caucasian star? Mm -hmm. it, it was so bizarre the way they did things. But to George's point, in the AWA, Vern and Wally, I looked over our list that we're going to be talking about today, and they always treated the black wrestlers coming into town with the ultimate respect. They didn't treat them as a gimmick. Mm -hmm. So why are we talking just about black wrestlers and not about people that we would consider minorities as a whole? I mean, why why is there an emphasis this week on, on the on the African-Americans, on the black wrestlers. Uh, who wants to start with that? You want to go ahead and start with that, George? Well, you know, I think the emphasis that we're going to put is on the black wrestlers and how they were treated and how they were perceived. But, you know, we never seriously, at least I didn't as a kid, and I, I started going to wrestling, you know, in the late 50s and then never quit. And I never had the opportunity to see that you know, if there was a Mexican wrestler or um, or one of the Native American wrestlers, if they were on the card, that they were ever pointed out as as being different or anything like that. I mean, yeah, they may say top Mexican wrestler Luis Martinez or something like that, mm -hmm. but it was never in the sense like what Mick pointed out when we'd we'd see in the program where they would say colored wrestler. Right. I mean, I find that offensive mm -hmm. at any point in my life. You know, then if if he was colored, well, then so was the white guy because white is mm -hmm. a color. I mean, give me a break. Yeah. So we never had that that definition different when it was an Indian wrestler like Billy Red Cloud or Don Eagle or Wahoo McDaniel. I mean, it, but the black wrestlers always had to have that stigma mm -hmm. to them. And they were as Negro wrestlers or top colored star, they would say in the program. And uh, I just that's why I think this is. Mm -hmm maybe focused more on on our black wrestler topic today and to, to, to give it a good light on at least how the American Wrestling Alliance Association handled them. I, I would add to that too, Chris, that when you talk about the minorities, I, I think that the, the big minority group that was presented in professional wrestling in the 50s and the 60s, aside from the black wrestlers, 
were the Japanese. And most of the Japanese mm -hmm. wrestlers in the 1950s and early 60s were not Japanese at all. Right. You know, they were either Philippines or Hawaiian extraction. They were not Japanese, but they portrayed them as Japanese. So, you know, in that sense, mm -hmm. they weren't the true Japanese minority. Uh, George mentioned, you know, the, the Latino wrestlers, the Mexican wrestlers. Yes, there were a handful of them that came into the AWA, but predominantly when you're talking minorities in the AWA, at least, it was the black wrestlers. So why do you guys think that Vern, when they come into the territory, why do you feel like he really wanted to maybe book them in a different light than they were in other territories? Why don't you go ahead and start with that, Mick? Oh, boy. Um, I, I, I guess I don't know. Not being Vern Gagne and the moral compass, I, I don't know. Um, I would just have to say, again, that maybe it was just a cultural thing. Maybe it was just the part of the country where Vern Gagne was born and raised, um, you know, was a little bit more tolerant, certainly, than they were in the Deep South, in the Tennessee area, Memphis, and, and so on and so forth. So, you know, and, and Vern was friends with a lot of these guys, too. So was Wally Carbo. So there was an ongoing friendship and relationship and business relationship. So they were always treated with respect. So I, I don't think it was any one reason why they were elevated the way they were. But to Vern's credit, to Wally's credit, absolutely. They were on a, on a par with the, the white wrestlers. You know, I, I want to piggyback on that and, and maybe add this. Vern Gagne, Wally Carbo, like any promoters, wherever they were promoting wrestling, obviously they were of the feeling that if a guy could be brought in and that guy could make them money, you know, it didn't matter if you were 650-pound Happy Humphrey or Haystack Calhoun who had that much talent if you were able to draw money, we were going to put you over. We were going to put you in the main event. And in a sense, all of the wrestlers that we're going to talk about, these were guys that were extremely talented. Yeah. They were extremely good in the ring at what they did. And yes, they could make money with them. But the fact is, if there was a prejudice or a bias involved, Vern or Wally could have said, I'm not going to use him. And that would have been a personal issue that they need to deal with and with their God. But the point being, they never did it. And the guys did make money and they brought in talented wrestlers and used them accordingly. And that is what we're going to touch on today. Some of these names we're going to bring out, some of the older fans, they may not even have heard of them or know of them. But this will be a chance for you to do some Googling and some research and find out how, how great we, we had a chance to see some really great superstars. And I know we're going to get into these names in a little bit. I, I just got a couple more questions I want to get out of the way. Um, you, you, you know, we're focusing on how Vern and when Wally booked them here. Did you guys hear back? You know, I know that access to information isn't, you know, wasn't what it is today. Did you guys have any idea how the black wrestlers were booked in other territories? Do you guys hear like vibes when somebody was coming in, like how they were, portrayed by fans or promoters or, or other wrestlers. Uh, go ahead and start with that, George. There were some promoters and, you know, just because I want to be fair here, I'm not going to throw out some names. Okay. I'm just not going to do it, but there were some promoters that would not book a, a black wrestler on their card. 
Now, to me, that's very closed minded. That's very I don't know if you're not in the business to make money or whatever it is. But because he was black, he wasn't going to get booked. Vern Gagne, I'm going to I'm going to mention a name that some people may not even be aware of. There was a black wrestler by the name of Luther Lindsay. And I will tell you that I remember talking with Luthez and Luthez told me that pound for pound, Luther Lindsay was one of the most talented wrestlers ever in this business. And he didn't always get the push or the, or the respect that he needed. And this is coming from Luthez who really wanted to work with wrestlers. Vern Gagne wanted to bring Luther Lindsay in to the AWA because Luther Lindsay was a wrestler and he could draw. He was exciting. Fans would have loved him. Well, Luther Lindsay didn't come here. And the reason he didn't was his own choice. And his choice was because he didn't want to be here in the winter. True story. He didn't want to be here in the winter. I'm not going to befall the guy for that. I don't want yeah, to. Yeah, in, in, de- in defense, I mean, we don't even want to be here during the spring right exactly. now. Exactly. Let's just be honest. <laughs> so, Vern tried. I mean, my God, it's it's February 57th right now. So, I mean. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But the uh, Vern Gagne tried in the mid-60s to get Luther to come here. And I remember I would have been excited about that. And he, Luther Lindsay would have been one of our best high flyers as well as technical wrestlers. Dick Byer also told me that Luther Lindsay was one of the greatest guys to work with in the ring. And that's a high compliment. Luther left us early in life. I mean, he passed away, but he was a hell of a talent. And uh, he would have been a great addition here. And Vern wanted him here. One thing that I would add to that, too, as far as how the wrestlers were portrayed uh, and perceived, Vern Gagne brought them in as wrestlers. Right. More so than he did as a gimmick. And, you know, JYD, one of the, you know, greatest names in, in wrestling, arguably had a gimmick. You know, it was, you know, uh, the thump and, and uh, you know, what have you. And Vern didn't treat the black wrestlers that way. They were wrestlers. The, the list that we're going to talk about whether it was Ernie Ladd or Earl Maynard or Butch Reed later on or, or what have you, even going back to the days of Bearcat Wright back in the, you know, in the 50s and the 60s, they were wrestlers. And Vern portrayed them that way, and that's why I say they were always on an equal level. And believe me when I tell you, it was a far cry in other territories, and I don't care, you can go back into the 80s and the 90s with, uh, you know, Coco Beware had his gimmick, um, you know, I, I had, uh, you know, Kamala, God bless him, had a gimmick. Vern treated them as wrestlers, as equals, and certainly that's, uh, you know, to Vern's credit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to ask you, Mick, about uh, Sputnik Monroe. Um, uh, was there a story uh, just about how how he was treated? Sputnik Monroe's real name was Roscoe Brumbaugh, and he was a mainstay heel in the southern part of the United States uh, for many, many years, and especially in and around the Memphis territory. Uh, he was one hell of a heel. He had a long run, but Sputnik Monroe bucked the system. And I say that, and there he is right there. He's, he's passed away several years ago. He was a bridge 
he was he fought segregation tooth and nail. He fought for the black wrestlers. He fought for the black fans. So because of that, he became kind of a pariah in the white community, in the white wrestler community, in the white wrestling fan community. I, I know I read a couple of articles where, uh, where Sputnik would go into a, a segregated cafe in the Deep South, and he would sit with a black wrestler or black person deliberately. And there were times when he bucked the system so badly, depending on how how stringent they were on their laws that they arrested the guy, you know, they arrested him for, for, you know, for being a civil rights advocate. And back in the day, back in the 1960s in the deep South, especially you just didn't do that. And, uh, you know, God bless him. That's a legacy. And again, in the ring, a notorious outside the ring, a humanitarian. We're before we get into the list. I just, I got one more question. I apologize. I don't normally ask this many questions. Were there any minorities that you guys felt, and I'll kind of throw this to you first, Mick, any minorities that you feel might've been shortchanged by the way that they were portrayed? You know, I don't know if it, if shortchanging is the word, uh, uh, they were, they were stereotyped. That's for sure. Um, you know, the black wrestlers, as I said, you know, de depending on the, the part of the country that you were in, had a gimmick. Uh, the the Native Americans, the Indians, whether it was, you know, a tomahawk chop or what have you. I know that mm -hmm. a lot of the uh, Native American wrestlers that I've dealt with uh, did not like that at all. But it was, you know, it was part of it. This is what you did. You did the war dance, whatever it may be. The Japanese wrestlers or those who were portrayed as Japanese wrestlers were the despicable, backstabbing, throw salt in the eyes, heels. So I don't know, Chris, if it was a matter of, you know, not getting their due, but they were certainly pigeonholed and, and stereotyped. Okay. Go ahead, George. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll point out this. We've all heard of Bruno San Martino. Very popular Italian wrestler. And we know that Bruno, for, you know, 15 years in the East Coast section of the country, with New York being one of the biggest cities, and the population being predominantly Italian and Puerto Rican, that Bruno was over like you wouldn't believe. And he had the talent, he had the ability but he was over because of that population. And, and they were smart enough to say, we've got this huge population and we're going to give them a hero and we're going to push them. Mm -hmm. You know, I've often wondered the question. If Bruno had not been just WWWF East Coast, would he have been over as much as he was if he would have traveled the 26 territories and been in a territory for a year or two like the majority of the wrestlers of that era did. You know, it's a question that maybe he wouldn't have been. And they were, they pigeonholed him in the New York area because obviously he was going to draw. Hmm. And again, that's what they were in business for. That's that's interesting how you how you say that Bruno was pigeonholed up there. Well, well you know, he to, was. Pedro Morales was the same way. You know, Pedro Morales, Puerto Rican, was over huge 
when he had the run with the WWF championship. So, yeah, I mean, in that sense, mm -hmm. demographically, it made all the sense in the world to do it. And I guess, you know, you take it a step further. It's no different than the Von Erichs, you know, going in Texas, over, yeah. in Texas or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Every every locale took their mm -hmm. talent and pigeonholed them. Yeah. All right. Now, I really like the way that this has been laid out, guys, because we've been doing it. We're about halfway through. We've been setting the table. And I think you guys no shit have done a really good job of, of answering my questions and kind of setting the stage. So in the last 30 minutes or so, we're actually going to uh, get into the list of names um, and uh, some we might spend a little bit more time on. But uh, the first one here, uh, Big Daddy Gene Linscombe. Uh, why don't you go ahead and start with that, George? Well, Big Daddy Gene Lipscomb, you know, that's a name that some fans aren't going to recognize. He wasn't the biggest name in professional wrestling. You may remember if you were a Baltimore Colts football fan that he was one of their biggest stars. And he was one of those wrestlers that during the offseason of football would go to wrestling because he could make good money in the offseason. And they didn't have those lucrative football contracts that we do today. This program that you're able to see here, if you're on YouTube with us, Vern Gagne, when he was battling Murder Incorporated, uh, Tiny Mills and Stan Crusher Kowalski, he went out and he brought in Big Daddy Lipscomb as his partner. Now, here's, here's where I say promoting was important. Vern obviously was going to draw money because he was Vern Gagne and he had his following. But he also went out and he hooked up with Big Daddy Lipscomb, who in 1960 was a big name in football. He brought him in, and by association, he put Lipscomb over because they liked Vern Gagne, and Vern Gagne liked Big Daddy, and Big Daddy mm -hmm. was a huge football player, and he was going to kick some ass against Murder Incorporated. Perfect promoting, and he did that. And Mick, I, this was one of our first matches that I attended, and I know you've got your story with it, too. Yeah, this was the first live match that I attended as a fan, was the tag match for Gagne and Big Daddy Lipscomb against Tiny Mills and Stan Crusher Kowalski uh, back May 17th of 1960. And George laid it out perfectly as far as, you know, how Vern handled Big Daddy when he brought him in. He was a big-name football star back in, in the day. Vern always liked the athlete, the pure athlete, where there was a wrestler, or football player, whatever, as opposed to the gimmick. So it was a perfect pairing. He wasn't in town for very long. I mean, it was kind of in and out, cup of coffee kind of thing, but went very, very big. And sadly, uh, Big Daddy Lipscomb actually took his own life uh, several years later. So uh, tragedy kind of, you know, at the end. But when he was here, he was he was over. Yeah. All right. Uh, how about the next one here, guys? Uh, Bearcat Wright. Uh, go ahead and start with that one, George. Well, Bearcat Wright is one of the biggest names in pro wrestling. He was one of the wrestlers that was able to travel the territories back in the 50s and 60s and even into the 70s. Everywhere he went, he was really over. But he also dealt with the 50s segregation type of thing where he had to wrestle a black wrestler. He couldn't wrestle a white wrestler. But to the credit of the AWA, when he was here, he had a battle with the Crusher, and he was given equal billing. In the 50s, and the, uh, Vern Gagne being a big star in Minneapolis, he was teamed with Bearcat Wright. And again, that was an example where 
we weren't pointing out that Bearcat Wright was a black wrestler. We were pointing out the fact that Vern Gagne picked him as a partner and he's my partner and he's equal and the fans got behind him and he was in the main event. And so again, that's a credit to Vern because he's sharing billing with this guy. And I think that is important is saying, you know what? I got a guy who's tough. I got him as my partner and we're not mentioning any color. That is where Vern was always good at not doing. And, and Bearcat Wright, I think probably had more longevity than just about anybody that, you know, is going to be on this list or at least right up there. Uh, tremendous talent, very, very charismatic and, Listening to what George says, it, it's, it's mind-boggling that we even have to point out the fact that Vern Gagne treated a wrestler as an equal as opposed to pointing out the color of the guy's skin. Yeah, ladies and gentlemen, that happened here in the United States of America, and it you know was in our lifetimes, at least for George and I, not that long ago. I would also point out that Bearcat Wright was brought in as a special troubleshooting referee for Fern Gagne. And, you know, how much more important is that when you got a guy that's going to be able to control the heel in the Mm -hmm. ring? That's putting him over. And Bearcat also had some boxing matches to his credit in the past. Great wrestler. How about uh, Bobo Brazil? Go ahead and go, George. Wow. Bobo Brazil. I don't think you can name – you can name – black wrestlers without naming Bobo Brazil right at the top. Exactly. Um, Here's something that's really important. When Bobo Brazil came to the AWA in 1961, a lot of fans may not realize that he came here at the request of Bill Miller, who was here as Mr. M. Bill Miller loved wrestling against Bobo Brazil, and they were friends outside the ring. And if you look at ring results, which I do all the time, wrestlers' records, Bill Miller and Bobo Brazil wrestled each other many, many times. But when Mr. M was AWA champion for eight months in 1961, he had asked Vern specifically to give me Bobo Brazil, bring him in. And Vern brought Bobo in. He was given a push. And here you see that Bobo is getting uh, the title ambitions and he's going to try to win the title. And Brazil was definitely here because of uh, Bill Miller. And Bill Miller and Vern Gagne were as close of friends as you could name outside the ring. So that's a credit to Vern as well. And Bobo drew well wherever he was. Bobo Brazil, no question about it. Probably the most famous black wrestler, you know, certainly of the era. Mm-hmm. He had that cocoa butt, that that headbutt that was a finishing maneuver for him. Uh, tremendously, tremendously popular. And uh, I, I echo what George said, you know, the, the relationship between uh, Bobo and Bill Miller is what brought him here. Bobo was actually a huge star in Chicago, in Indianapolis, in Detroit, and that area, the Bruiser promotion. So, an all-time great Hall of Famer, no doubt. How about uh, Sailor Art Thomas? Go ahead and go, Georgie. Sailor Art. Boy, you know, when when Sailor Art Thomas came to uh, Minneapolis, and again, when we say Minneapolis, we're always talking AWA. When he came to Minneapolis, he came here with a build, a body, that was a physique that was phenomenal, and it was real, folks. There were no steroids in that era. And Vern put him over from the get-go. 
absolutely brought him in as a superstar. This was at the time when the Crusher in the AWA was our top heel. Crusher was more hated and drew money as a heel like you wouldn't believe. Vern brought Sailor Art in, who was a native of Madison, Wisconsin. And he brought Sailor Art in, put him in a program with the Crusher. There was never any reference that Sailor Art was a black wrestler. He was Sailor Art Thomas. And he actually put him over the Crusher. And in the program with the Crusher, Vern actually paid Sailor Art Thomas more than he was paying the Crusher for their series of matches. And Sailor Art was wow. not over the Crusher, not only with the build, because, you know, Crusher was always bragging about his 50 megaton arms. And they put him over as a better build and a better wrestler and put him over the Crusher when Crusher was a heel. That alone says it all. And Vern drew well with it. Then periodically throughout the rest of the AWA, Sailor Art would be brought in and he was always in a high profile match or against a very, very top rated talent uh, talent in the AWA. So Sailor Art was always treated well by Vern. And Vern and Sailor Art also teamed together, not here in Minneapolis, but in the AWA. Sailor Art Thomas, by, by all accounts from people that I've talked to in the business from back in the area, in the era, was just a wonderful guy outside the ring too. Soft-spoken. I mean, even his his promos were, were soft-spoken. He's another guy that worked a lot of Chicago and the Milwaukee area and Detroit, working for Dick the Bruiser and what have you. And like George said, they would bring Sailor Art every once in a while. They'd bring him in going into the 70s. Uh, Nick Bockwinkel had a program with Sailor Art when Nick was first uh, getting going here in the AWA. I remember one time they brought in Sailor Art as a, a mystery opponent for Black Jack Lanza on television. And Bobby Heenan and Black Jack Lanza threw a fit. You know, what are we doing? Oh, my God, you can't bring this guy in. What are you talking about? Art Thomas, how much did you have to pay this guy? So Art was the real deal in a class act. I had, a I had a chance to have lunch with Ramon Torres one time, and he told me that Sailor Art Thomas was a guy. He had teamed with him, and he said that Sailor Art was one of his favorite guys to be around. He said he was a, just a good guy outside the ring. So I have nothing but respect for him, and Vern treated him well. Yes. How about uh, – here's a name that a lot of people are going to know. Big Cat Ernie Ladd. Wow. Uh, go ahead and start with this one, Mick. Ernie Ladd, when he came into the AWA area, you know, Ernie was a former football player, uh, tremendous. I believe he was all pro. Ernie was a big man. I mean, you talk about a guy who didn't have to exaggerate his height or wear, you know, uh, lifts in his shoes or whatever. Ernie was about 6'9", 6'10", and about 300 pounds. Very, very imposing wrestler. There's a look at the size there. That's Ernie, obviously, on the left, Marty O'Neill in the middle, and Vern Gagne. Now, Vern was about 6'1", 6'1", in his heyday. And look at the size of Ernie Ladd. And when they brought Ernie in, he had the football reputation, yes. But again, as I mentioned earlier, Ernie is coming into the AWA in the later 1960s, mid to late 1960s, where there was a lot of racial tension. You know, not only around the country, but also in Minneapolis. Minneapolis was the scene of some 
racial riots in the 1960s. And Vern brought in Ernie Ladd as a big baby face. And man, did he go over. Uh, he tagged team with Earl Maynard. I know we're going to talk about Earl a little bit. Ernie eventually made the transformation into, in my estimation, one of the greatest heels ever in wrestling. One of the greatest promo guys. But we didn't see the heel side of Ernie Ladd here in the AWA. The one thing I'd say about Ernie Ladd that was so important was when Vern brought him in in 1965, 64, 65, um, Ernie Ladd was still playing football for the Kansas City Chiefs. Yep. And this was an off-season thing. Ernie had played for San Diego football, and he was doing the off-season thing. He started to realize that he could make more money in wrestling. Again, we didn't have lucrative contracts for football back in those days. And so Vern brought him in. And by the picture that you showed earlier, Chris, Vern brought him in as a surprise partner. He was Vern was battling against Larry Hennig, Pretty Boy Hennig, and Handsome Harley Race. And they were the champions running roughshod on the AWA. And Vern said, I got a partner. And again, by association, Ernie Ladd became so popular, but he was never announced as I'm bringing in this big, tall black wrestler or this colored wrestler or the Negro wrestler, which a lot of the other programs still at that time around the country would mm -hmm. do. Vern brought him in as big cat Ernie Ladd. And he let the fans accept him because Vern Gagne accepted him. And that's the way it should be. You know, he was, there was no color thing there. And Ernie was over. Mm -hmm. I mean, his matches, Hennig and Race went ballistic because they're bringing in this Eiffel Tower and this guy is a monster. And, and they were great. They were great matches. And then when Vern stepped aside, Ernie was still here for some matches. And then the next guy we're going to talk about mm -hmm. transitioned with uh, Ernie. Well, let's get right into uh, Earl Maynard. Uh, go ahead and continue that thought, George. Well, Vern Gagne, again, as the heavyweight champion and him chasing Mad Dog Vashon at the time, he brought Ernie Ladd had his own partner. He was going to bring in a surprise. And in 1965, Ernie or Earl Maynard had won the Mr. USA, Mr. Universe. He was Mr. Universe. And if you look at his picture, he had a impressive bill and he was brought in as ernie's partner and the fans literally i was at the match they had against hennig and race and i'm telling you the fans were so behind lad and maynard and of course anybody just about could be a you know cheered in those days against hennig and race but earl maynard and ernie lad they were put over and Vern had a series i think there were three or four matches here and then all over the AWA. Earl Maynard, another very soft-spoken guy, similarly to Art Thomas with his tremendous physique and legitimately Mr. Universe. Uh, he had a is one of these guys, soft-spoken, but when you get in the ring with the heels and you lit that fire under him, uh, he was just like yeah, hell bent for uh, hell bent for leather. And uh, just an aside story, I saw Earl handful of years ago at Cauliflower Alley Club. He still, to this day, looks tremendous. I showed him an old program from when he was in the AWA area, and he was just, he almost got teary-eyed. He was thrilled that somebody remembered him from that, in that era. But again, Ladd and Maynard for that time, and again, 
into the Chicagoland area. Uh, the team transcended the upper Midwest. How about Rufus R. Jones? And along with this, I know there's a, a, a story here that you're going to tell Mick, but I will uh, let George set it up. And then uh, after that, go ahead and tell us your Pat Patterson story with it. Sure. Well, Rufus R. Jones, you know, Vern again brought in a talent who had not been tested here in the AWA, Minneapolis in particular, but he brought in Pat O'Connor. And Pat O'Connor uh, and Rufus Jones were a successful tag team in the Midwest, especially in Oh, St. Pat O'Connor, the first AWA champion, right? Oh, boy. Okay, Chris, uh, you're <laughs> fine. <laughs> no, yeah, the Pat O'Connor okay, that sometimes fans want to believe in their fantasy world that was AWA champion. Uh, but Pat O'Connor and Rufus R. Jones, very popular tag team in other areas. And Bernard brought Rufus in. And then Rufus brought in his partner, Pat O'Connor. Well, they were popular as hell. They wrestled against uh, Pat Patterson and Ray Stevens, had a, had a run with them. And then they put Rufus with Mighty Igor. And again, very popular. Igor, always very popular. And so Rufus was given a very decent push. Again, we never had to hear black wrestler or anything in the programs. The fans could cheer them, and the fans did. And Rufus was given a good push here. He had a run with Angelo Mosca. He had a run with Super Destroyer uh, Don Jardine. And he wrestled against uh, Patterson and Stevens, teamed with the Crusher. And again, by association, if you're the Crusher's buddy at that time frame, Crusher was the most popular wrestler. So Rufus was, you know, as equally popular in the fans. Were, Vern treated him well. I mentioned this one time before on a, on a previous show that Rufus was actually the father of Reverend Slick. Yeah. The uh, the manager in the in the WWF lot the, the, of the, the doc the doctor of style slick doctor yeah style I'm not talking about Shire I'm talking about the Reverend Slick, but of the guys that we've mentioned I think George would would agree with this from a pure wrestling standpoint Rufus was not great, but he 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 was more gimmicky than the other wrestlers that came into town, and tremendously charismatic. Uh, he did have a title shot against Nick Bockwinkle. Yes. And Nick, of course, who could work with a broomstick uh, and make him look good. Actually, that was far and away Rufus's best match here. Mm -hmm. um, what I was going to say about that, and, and George talked how they didn't have to present Rufus as a black wrestler. He was just charismatic, and he was over. Pat Patterson is the only guy that I remember in a television interview, in a promo, when he had his program going with, with Rufus Jones, that even alluded to even subtly making a racial reference. And I don't know why this sticks in my head, maybe because I'm thinking back in the day, are you kidding? You know, we're late 1970s and you're still doing this. Patterson said something to the effect of, you know, you, you, it's going to be a very difficult night for you, Rufus Jones, whatever. And he stopped himself and he said, wait a minute, let me rephrase that so you will understand this. Even you will understand this. And he said, you is in trouble, boy. And I'm listening to this and it's 1970s and I'm thinking, 
Where in the hell did that come from? So, you know, in the scheme of things, again, the you know, the black wrestlers were put over like gold, but at, there was that one time that Patterson eh, stuck it in there just a little bit. Mind-boggling. Did, did you did you ever feel like after Patterson said that, did you feel like there'd be some sort of a backlash or some sort of, oh, my God, I shouldn't have said that? Or, I mean, wh- I guess I just have a hard time hearing that story and then backing it up and then just going right back to it and, and rephrasing it in, in a way. I mean, was it still, I mean, was it still acceptable to say it back in that, you know, back in the late seventies or was it as taboo? I I can't imagine it was as taboo as it is now. It's not as, it wasn't as taboo as it is now and whether or not it was acceptable or not in the late seventies, I don't know. You know, we've always had racism. Um, Patterson was selling tickets, you know, um, that was basically it. And he was, he was probably trying to uh, light a fire under Rufus's fan base, mm-hmm. to get them to come out inappropriate to say the least, but I never heard that there was any kind of a backlash about it. Just one of those things. One of yeah. those things that just stuck out with me is like, Oh my God. Wow. What? Did I just hear that? Yeah, and, and I didn't I didn't mean to put you on the spot there. No, it's just no, kind no. Of something that popped up. You know, one of the things that I'd touch on, you know, if Rufus, if if something like this came impromptu from Pat Patterson when he did this, which was wrong, or if it had been agreed to that he was going to do this, perhaps Rufus was willing to accept it. I don't know. I would say that I, I don't think he would have appreciated it. Right. But you know, there's that old adage that in pro wrestling, and this is kind of, I hear people all the time saying, well, Vince McMahon did this to certain wrestler. In the case of Adrian Adonis, changing him into the, the heavier feminine type wrestler that, that Adrian was turned into. I always take the, the approach and say, you know, Adrian had a chance to say, no, I'm not going to do it. Mm-hmm. He, he accepted it and took the money. So there may have been some of that where Rufus was okay with it, not, you know, for that particular instance, but here's when Mick pointed out, he put a fire under him. Maybe what he really did was he put a fire under the fans that both Rufus and Pat were going to be able to benefit from because the fans were going to come to see Rufus and his partner kick some butt. And Mm -hmm. if that worked, maybe that was the whole thing, but it was inappropriate. And I, I did what Mick did. I went, what? Yeah. Come on. You know, well, this is 1978. How about the next one? It's another name that a lot of us know maybe for the time outside of the AWA, and that's Mr. USA, Tony Atlas. Uh, go, ahead and, uh, go ahead and start with this one, George. Mr. USA, Tony Atlas. Again, a wrestler who has had a, a, a name around the country. He was in and out of territories. And Vern brought him in. Again, never highlighting anything about color, race, any of that crap. He brought him in as a talented wrestler. He even teamed him up with jumping Jim Brunzel. We know how popular Jimmy was. He had him in a program with Bruiser Brody. So Atlas was given a push, never relegated to main events. He had gotten title shots with Nick Bockwinkel. Nick said he enjoyed working with Atlas. I don't know that Atlas was the greatest technical wrestler, but he was able to draw money 
And Vern always presented him in a very positive light and on the upper part of the card or in main events. And again, a credit to Vern and Wally. One thing about Tony Atlas, Vern was very strategic too when he brought him in. This was when Vince McMahon had just recently raided all the talent from the AWA. So anytime Vern could get a coup and get a, a, a wrestler from WWF who had established himself there, right. he did it. And that's when he brought Tony Atlas in. And of course, you know, customarily, you know, when a guy jumps to another territory, Tony Atlas put over the AWA like gangbusters in his first couple of promos. You know, they really wrestle here. It's not show business. This is the major league of wrestling and so on and so forth. Um, Tony Atlas is a great guy. Uh, just as an aside, I had an opportunity to work with Tony in later years in the AWF. Very soft-spoken, very funny guy, and uh, a, a credit to the business. He's got that incredible laugh, too. Oh, my God, yes. Like, yeah. Um, how about uh, Hacksaw Butch Reed? Because we know Butch Reed. Um, I know him from a ton of different territories. I mean, you know. But let's, yeah, I, I know you guys have some stories about him here. And, and again, this is one of these names that I didn't get a chance to see his run in the AWA. I just remember some of these individuals from other promotions. But again, we're focusing specifically on the AWA. But I do want to reminisce the people, a lot of people around my age probably do not remember uh, a lot of these individuals in the AWA. But uh, Mick, why don't you start with uh, Hacksaw Butchery? Axel Butchery is very, very talented wrestler. I mean, this guy kind of, you know, went from one era to the other. Um, not only he was huge in the Kansas City area, Bill Watts and the Mid-South Territory, wherever he went, Butch was, was huge. Of course, when he came to the AWA, changed the persona a little bit. There's the Hacksaw and Hacksaw Bruce Reed. He was Bruce Reed at the time. And then, of course, they kind of evolved into – uh, Butch Reed, uh, and then he developed the heel persona. Uh, but I, again, a legitimate tough guy, great charisma, great athlete. And you're getting into the mid 1980s where, again, Butch Reed had established a reputation long before he came into the AWA area. Mm -hmm. So Vern is going into his pro wrestling USA and that type of thing. And he's trying to battle Vince McMahon. Uh, you know, it, on any level that he could, Hack, uh, uh, Butch Reed was, was definitely a mainstay. You know, sadly, later on in life, Butch got into, uh, you know, a little bit of uh, legal issues once in a while. But from a talent standpoint, what a talker, mm -hmm. what a wrestler, what an athlete. I would point out that Butch Reed, when Vern brought him in, he was one of the few uh, black wrestlers who Vern actually brought in as a heel yeah. because Butch was good at the part, you know, playing the heel. And he had brought him in and given him was, had him set up for a high profile situation as being the bodyguard to gorgeous Jimmy Garvin, who at the time was getting a hell of a push and, and, you know, drawing money and to, to also protect precious who was uh, Jimmy Garden's uh, manager. And, Butch Reed came in. It was very short-lived. Um, the long story short is that Butch Reed wanted more money 
He had an issue with Vern. He was going to have the bodyguard role, and I don't know exactly what went on behind the scenes, but Butch got an offer, and he ended up going to the WWF, Mm -hmm. and he was given that natural uh, gimmick with the blonde hair. and So it was short-lived, but Vern had intentions to use him in in a profile situation. And again, in that era, there was a lot of issues about money and contracts and things, and so Butch as we say, was more of a coffee break. But we remember it because I was excited that Butch Reed was here. And, and Butch, of course, teaming up with Ron Simmons. Oh, yeah. Uh, to That's Doom, yeah. yeah. Doom in WCW. Uh, great talent. He mm-hmm. really is an all-time great. Yeah. I didn't realize how good like Butch Reed was until I've gone back and I've seen a little bit, but I, I was just like amazed that I didn't – I remember the Doom – uh, back in WCW because it seemed like that was one of the few teams that both of those individuals as being, you know, black wrestlers as African-Americans, they were both extremely athletically talented. And, and to me, even back in the late eighties, like I, I didn't even see that. I, I didn't see two black wrestlers in a team that could, that both had the ability to just do unbelievably things that could main event on their own. Chris, it's all about credibility. I mean, they had it. They had it. Look at a guy and you say, this guy's the real deal. Yeah. Whether it was Ernie Ladd, Butch Reed, Ron Simmons, any of those guys, Mm -hmm. they made you believe. And whether it was in the ring with their physicality or the way they cut a promo, um, yeah, you're you're absolutely right. So you 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 don't think for a minute about race. It's a talented, tough guy, professional wrestler. And another guy that that I really believed in that scared me when I was a kid is the next one. And I know that he was just in there for a little bit. He was kind of a late add to the show, but that was uh, Kamala. Um, George, kind of give us your thoughts of Kamala in the AWA. Well, Kamala, you know, it's interesting because he also was, we're going to call a coffee break in the AWA, but Kamala had a, a reputation around the country. He was both a baby and more of a heel he had a gimmick. He, he was, you know, the Ugandan giant, and he used to pat his belly and, you know, make strange sounds. But Vern brought him in for uh, Wrestle Rock. And that whole situation was, you know, when you look at the situation in the AWA at the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Vern was fighting for his life, for his promotion, for his well, company. And you're trying to bring in every name talent you can that Vince McMahon hasn't already locked in the bathroom to keep him from going anywhere. So Kamala was brought in basically because of his reputation in the South. And mm-hmm. it was, it was short lived. I mean, that's, that's all I can say about Kamala. I, I don't think he was here for any long-term push or, or, you know, even an insinuation of one. I I worked with, with Kamala, Jim Harris, in Australia back in 1991. And uh, I talked to him a little bit about that AWA run and he was very happy with the way he was treated. I mean, you know, even if it was that proverbial coffee break, here was a man, you know, it it was legendary. He would talk about how he got screwed uh, pay wise many, many times in the WWF. Uh, This is coming from him. Uh, so when he came to the AWA, even for that short little time, and again, this is about the pro wrestling USA era, Sergeant Slaughter had come in and, and you know, all those guys. Uh, 
one of the nicest guys I ever met in professional wrestling. You know, from the from the jungles of Sanatobia, Mississippi. Uh, Big Jim's Trucking. He owned a trucking company, and he actually, I believe, built a house for his mother on his property. Um, just a tremendous guy, and what a what a life he he led, especially towards the end. I miss him miss him dearly. He was a friend for thirty years, and his book is phenomenal. By the way, oh, and what uh, a singer! What a singer too. I I never heard him sing, but oh, uh, go online. Kamala yeah. sings. Kamala sings. Okay. I will. Well, hence that probably makes sense with the book. Kamala speaks. Kamala sings. There you I go. Even know, see, I was today years old before I found that out. Well, George and I had just turned 88. <laughs> Wait a minute. You're a year in older 80, than I am. 88 in 88. Is that what we're talking about? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, uh, by the way, we're going a little long. Um, that's cool. I'm going to break this up into two parts. So those that are watching it, we're, uh, we broke this up into two parts. So um, because I, I don't want to shortchange this one at all, because I feel like this is a really good topic. I feel like this is one that needs to be explored. So um, off the cuff, just kind of let you know, um, this is actually part two. We didn't know that going in. Um, another one that scared the shit out of me and I mean, still does when you've got the name the butcher and you really look like the butcher. I mean, there's one that I think of and that's Abdullah. So uh, go ahead and start with this one, George. Well, you know, bringing in, when I was a kid watching Abdullah, the butcher, one of the very first pictures I remember seeing in a wrestling magazine was Abdullah ripping apart a, a chicken. <laughs> and the chicken wasn't, cooked it was a real chicken he's ripping this poor thing apart please tell me it was dead already i hope oh but abdullah the butcher you know here was a guy who he made his money going around being the wild man from the sudan i don't i don't know that i ever heard him uh sputter out anything led you know uh of english he was a bleeder any match he came to any match he was in he brought in his own fork and he'd, he'd use it on the opponent's forehead, and he'd use it on himself. There he is. I mean, this guy was nuts. Well, Vern brought him in at a time when uh, Sheik Adnan Al Casey was trying to continue to form his army of wrestlers, and he brought him in as Jerry Blackwell's partner when Jerry was still a heel with the Sheik. Now, the Sheik was so over as a heel. And because of the gimmick he was using with a uh, with a rack, he brings in Abdullah, and now he's with Jerry Blackwell. And then they were associated with Bruiser Brody, who we've talked about. And here comes Abdullah, who is <clears throat> from the tongue, and he's got his fork. He had him in a profile match against the Crusher. He had the, the, the Brody uh, and Abdullah were together, beating up on Jerry Blackwell later. I mean. Absolutely one of the weirdest guys. I'm not a blood guy. I, mm -hmm. I understood wrestling having red means green. I got it. But I couldn't take blood every match. And if 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 bro, uh, Abdullah, I get excited just thinking about it. If he would have been on every card, I probably wouldn't have been a fan. But he drew money, and Vern knew it. And I saw him in the matches with the Blackjacks. Just a crazy guy. One of the great gimmicks in wrestling history, Larry Shreve, 
yeah. turning into Abdullah the Butcher. And what we saw in the AWA was just a small taste. And again, to me, the greatest babyface turn ever was the Jerry Blackwell turn after the Battle Royal when Abdullah and Bruiser Brody and everybody else is ganging up on Jerry Blackwell. Abdullah was in the AWA for a cup of coffee, uh, kind of like the Mongolian stopper towards the end of the run there for the Sheik. But Abdullah's reputation everywhere. I mean, in, in, in Japan, this guy is legendary. And one thing I would say, you know, there are foreheads in professional wrestling, and then there are foreheads. And the, the photo that we saw of Abdullah there doesn't do justice to the forehead that he had, yeah. which looks like a, a moon landing. I mean, you really thought there was a lunar explosion. That's the first thing I think of when I think of Abdullah and, and how he looks. First oh. thing I think about is, is the forehead. Oh, my God. And Abdullah would take take reporters in, into his hotel room, and part of his gimmick, which he thought was very funny, he would take out a quarter or a 50-cent piece and put it into one of those scars in his head that was so deep that the, the coin would disappear. So, yeah, uh, Abdullah, like George said, if you're not a blood guy, Abdullah the Butcher was not your cup of tea, but uh, but legendary. All he had to do was kick, butt, uh, punch, bite, use the fork, whatever. He didn't have and to. And it was that. a real fork. It was a real fork, absolutely. He did, and one time, I the first time I met Abdullah the Butcher was in Chicago in 1988, and when he spoke, I couldn't believe it. It's like I'm expecting this big, ferocious guy, and he came up with this little tiny voice, and I was just like blown away. <laughs> Is this Abdullah the Butcher? Yeah, he's uh, legendary for sure. But uh, let's continue to move on here, guys. Uh, Joe, tell me about Jersey Joe Walcott. Jersey Joe Walcott. He was uh, obviously a very famous boxer back in the day. And he would come in to the AWA as a special troubleshooting referee in the late 50s when it was still NWA territory, but also in the 60s. One match that was very memorable was he was brought in as the special referee when he was going to uh, handle Vern Gagne and Big Moose Evans against the heels, Crusher and Bruiser. And Walcott was brought in outside the ring. Jersey Joe and Wally Carbo were good friends. Wally had actually refereed one of Walcott's matches or boxing matches. And you got to remember the Minneapolis Boxing and Wrestling Club. We didn't focus on boxing that much, but Jersey Joe and Wally were friends. And Wally was the one that usually negotiated with Joe Walcott to come in. And again, he comes in with his reputation. He was never referred to as a black wrestler. He was the boxing champion, Jersey Joe Walcott, and given the push. And of course, always coming in as a, a baby face in a referee situation. And that one match I remember, uh, the fans were cheering Jersey Joe. That was one of my first memorable matches because I was a big Moose Evans fan at the time. And Crusher and Bruiser were so hated. Mm -hmm. But Jersey Joe was good. Absolutely a great referee. 
Jersey Joe kind of did the circuit around the country, uh, yep. in as a special guest referee. So did Joe Lewis, you know, one of the greatest heavyweight boxers of all time. They kind of made that transition and picked up a lot of money. And invariably, at the end of a match, Jersey Joe Walcott would clock somebody. You know, the heel would get in his face at some point in the matchup, generally at the end, and they would try to get in a little push and shove with Jersey Joe Walcott, and Jersey Joe would hit him with an uppercut or a straight left or whatever, and it was lights out for the heel, sent everybody home happy. How about uh, um, Armand Hussein? Wow. Um, I know that's a name that maybe a lot of people don't know, but uh, Mick, go ahead and start with this one. You know, George is actually more familiar with Armand than I am. My recollections of Armand Hussein were when he came in as an enhancement guy in the early 1960s in the AWA. Uh, he became a big star around the country later on after the AWA territory. And he, again, did the, you know, the whole Sudanese uh, kind of gimmick. Um, but again, my recollection of him w was strictly as enhancement, but I know he had a reputation beyond that, George. He was, you know, when you say enhancement talent and, you know, we use that term jobber, like any territory, uh, Vern had some really talented, uh, enhancement talent guys. And Armand Hussein was in the AWA in the early sixties in that role, but he was never used in the sense that. You know, um, Vern tried to put, you know, not put him over. He was, he had that Kenny J or that George Gadaski persona that you believed he could win a match. He, he looked like he had the ability and Vern used him in that respect. He was here not a long time. And then he went on. He also, though, had to deal with some of the racial bias type situations during his career outside of the AWA as he got uh, more popular in the business. But I wanted to mention him because definitely he was one of the first guys in the AWA that he wasn't a high-profile guy, but he wasn't buried. He would be in he would be on a wrestling card in the second match and be against one of the the heels, and uh, he he got a push in that sense. And I remember him well. I, I thought he was very charismatic. How about Thunderbolt Patterson? That's a, a name that maybe a, a lot of people would remember. Um, why don't you go ahead and uh, start with this one, George? Thunderbolt Patterson was here in the mid-60s wrestling as Claude Patterson. And he actually came up here from the, the Amarillo territory, the Funks that were promoting. Larry Hennig and Harley Race had hooked up with uh, Claude Patterson and Bearcat Wright when they were in Amarillo. And it was Larry Hennig that suggested that Claude Patterson be brought in and come up here to work. Now, you talk about enhancement talent. You have to remember that when Claude Patterson was here in 64 and 65, he was brand new to the business or very early in his career. And so, yeah, he was on TV a lot, but he had matches on TV where he would be teamed with someone and it would be the other uh, enhancement talent that would do the fall. And it was Thunderbolt or Claude Patterson that was, you know, getting more showcased on TV. When he left the AWA, he started to progress and, and develop his character. He became Thunderbolt Patterson. He was King Thunderbolt in uh, 
the Dallas Fort Worth yeah, territory right really, there. Yep. Really over. And he, he went into the, the heel persona, but he was also a baby teamed up with Dusty Rhodes. And you talk about two guys that had some charisma. They were, they were great. But here in the AWA, uh, Vern didn't use him where he buried him. He just didn't have him in the more high profile matches, but he never lost on TV that my results show, except that he was in a tag team that lost. Certainly in the AWA, that was the springboard for, for Claude Patterson. And George talks about his charisma. Oh, my God. If there was ever a wrestler that had charisma, and not only when he would do TV promos, and I'm thinking about uh, championship wrestling from Georgia, when he would be out there face-to-face with Ole Anderson or what have you. Um, just charisma off the charts. And when you see this guy at Cauliflower Alley Club or other conventions, that's the real deal. That's the Thunderbolt Patterson. His promo style from when he's on television transcends into when he's given a speech or whatever else. And I tell you, once you listen to Thunderbolt Patterson, you will never forget that you listen to Thunderbolt Patterson. Uh, that's great. That's great. You got a, a couple more here. Um, maybe the last uh, top black baby face, and I know he was a, a friend of uh, both of yours guys. And that's uh, Derek Dukes. Uh, why don't you go ahead and start with this one, Nick? Derek Dukes, I love the guy. You know, when I first met Derek, he was uh, an Eddie Sharkey trainee working for Pro Wrestling America. Had an opportunity to go on an Australian tour with him. Just a gifted athlete. Loved the business. Again, very charismatic. They called him Starfire. There's the Dukester. That was just a couple of years ago uh, here in the Twin Cities area. Put on a couple of pounds since his wrestling days, but, you know, shit, we all have. But uh, uh, Derek Dukes, I can't say enough good things about the guy. The one thing, of course, that he probably is noted for, he was probably the the last big black baby face that wrestled for the AWA, and he got involved in that horrid angle. Uh, with Colonel De Beers, the race racist angle, the racial angle came to the surface in a big way. <clears throat> it was the, you know, if, if I lose, Colonel De Beers said, I'll paint myself white or you could paint me white or, or black. And if you, you lose Derek Dukes, I'm going to paint you white. Just a horrendous angle. And to this day, I can't understand how Vern let that one go. It was incongruous with everything else he had done in previous years. Yeah, it, it, that just that doesn't seem like something with the way that Vern had put, you know, everybody coming in on on equal footing. To me, if if everything still went through Vern, it just it's mind boggling when you tell me about that story. That that's was something that was greenlit. That yeah, this is something that was that was okay. One of the things that I'd say about that's that time period when that horrible incident was portrayed, I've taken the approach that the last three to four years of the AWA, I don't think Vern Gagne, I think we've talked about this, Vern Gagne wasn't the same Vern Gagne that we had all come to know and love. Uh, the fighting for his territory, his company, and the business, the way it had just so uprooted itself and changed he wasn't able to go along with it and, and appreciate that it had to change. 
And he did things that, you know, he wouldn't have done a year or two or 10 earlier. And so that was a horrific uh, thing. What I want to say about Derek Dukes is I think he was our last true babyface black wrestler. He was over with the fans. Vern used him in a, in a good capacity that he was given a push and, and given the popularity he deserved. Mm-hmm. I liked the Derek Dukes that I knew outside the ring. And one incident that I think I touched on once before that I just think is worth saying, he was just a very soft-spoken, a very nice, kind man. And I remember, you know, he wasn't probably making as much money as he should in the business at the time. My family, when my girls were still little, we went over to a Bridgman's ice cream parlor. There's an oldie for you. And Derek Dukes was the, one of the soda jerks there, one of the servers. And uh, and they were called soda jerks, folks. I'm not picking on him. But... Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I I was about ready to mute something. No, I, no, no. They, okay. Back in the day, they were known as soda jerks, whether regardless of what color they were. Uh, but he was he was there working, and he came over to our table, and I knew Derek because I too had had a chance to work some with him up in Winnipeg with Tony Condello's uh, promotion, and Derek came over to our table. My girls were enamored. I mean, they were what, eight years old and maybe four years old at the time, give or take, or something like that. And they were enamored that I knew a wrestler and that he was there. <laughs> and he was so good. He talked with them. I remember he gave him an autograph. And uh, we even got our, our ice cream for free. Now, I don't know if Derek had to pay for that or not, but he did. And so I remember that. He was a good guy. And he, he got at the end, he got a decent push in the business, which he so rightly deserved. And uh, with the exception of that painting thing. One thing I got to add about Dukes, Mark Gastineau, the old football player who turned boxer, uh, Dukes had to do the job for Mark Gastineau when the promoters were were pushing Gastineau as the great white hope or whatever it was. Yeah. And Derek... He took a shot uh, from from Gaston Oak, Chris, that you could probably withstand. And Derek sold that he's taken the wrestler bump, you know, a flat back bump. And, and immediately after that, everybody, all the press is all over. Oh, my God, what did, what did this wrestler doing for Mark Gaston And right after that, Derek went on a tour of Australia that I was lucky enough to be on. And I used to rib him. I said, did the heat get that bad about Mark Gastineau and you taking that ridiculous over his <laughs> that you had to literally go to the other side of the world? To- <laughs> <laughs> so it was, uh, we joked about it to this. <laughs> Derek Dukes is a class act. And uh, the last one, guys, um, another friend uh, of uh, both of yours, um, because you guys both knew him well, and, and that's uh, that's Larry Cameron. So uh, let's go ahead and finish up with him because I I think it's apropos that we finish up with uh, Larry Cameron. Um, George, why don't you go ahead and get us started? Well, I'm going to say that Larry Cameron. I think he was probably would if the AWA had survived. I think Larry Cameron would have been one of the guys that Vern would have been able to really showcase and and make money with 
had things been able to progress. Um, I did not know Larry as well as I know Mick had some some actual workings with him, but I know I really appreciated his work. Um, and Mick, you'd have to correct me. I think he wrestled as Larry the Butcher Cameron, didn't he? Yes. For, yes. for a bit. Yeah. A great, great worker. And I really was, I was excited when Vern brought him in because I thought, you know, this is a step in the right direction. We've got a guy who's been relatively on the lower end of cards and working more for the independent scene at the time. And he was coming to the AWA. It's just that it was at the, the wrong time. But I really thought he had the ability. And Vern, I think, was really prepared to treat him fairly. I, I don't have any reason to believe differently. He was over huge in the Calgary Stampede area. Yes. And uh, when he was wrestling in the Eddie Sharkey's Pro Wrestling America promotion, it was his lethal Larry Cameron. I had the opportunity to work with Larry on that Australia tour that I mentioned a little bit ago, and he came in as a monster heel. And I'm going to tell you, I wish the folks in the United States and particularly in the AWA, there's Larry. That actually was from Australia. I'm actually feeding the man. You know, it, it, Larry was such a commanding presence. If he said, give me that shish kebab on a stick and feed it to me, you did it. You know, it was that kind of a deal. Um, <laughs> But I wish the fans in the AWA had seen the Larry Cameron that I saw in Australia. When he came in, the presence that this guy had captivated the audience as a heel. And sadly, and I, I mentioned this before, <clears throat> Larry passed away, unfortunately, in the ring prior to a match in Germany. And when we got the word, it was at Ropers in Fridley, where Larry had wrestled many, many times. And I had to make the announcement to the crowd and got to the building. And Eddie Sharkey said, I got some horrible news. Larry Cameron passed away in, in Germany. And I announced it to the crowd, and everybody was just blown away. I can't say enough good things about Larry Cameron. Here was a guy that stuck up for the boys in the business, too. Yes. I remember one independent show with a promoter that shall remain nameless. I will never mention his name. He was an ex-wrestler, a promoter. I uh, had booked Larry on a card that he promoted and came time to pay the boys and everybody was getting shortchanged. And Larry Cameron is the guy that got into this promoter's face and basically stood up for all the wrestlers and said, you know, we, you're not gonna screw us like this. It got so bad that there was actually almost a fight in the locker room. It was very scary. Baron Von Raschke, of all things, got between Larry Cameron and this promoter, or that promoter would not have made it out of the uh, building. He would have been part of the landscape. But uh, I can't say enough good things about Larry Cameron. Like George said, the timing was, was bad. Had he been in the AWA two, three years earlier, or the AWA stuck around for a while, he would have been a big-time player. Wow. Um, I guess we pretty much covered it all. We uh, we got through – again, I know this was – we're way over what we were going to do for one show, so we're going to uh, break it up. So this is going to be two parts. Um, I mean, this was great. I'm George, I got – again, I'm going to give you full credit for yeah. bringing up the topic. Because I, I just, I feel like it's so, it's so good to maybe hear how the, 
how the black wrestlers were treated with equality and respect instead of being stereotyped. So um, I'm going to, I'm going to thank you for bringing this up because once you brought it up, I knew it, it took a while for us to get to this point and, and actually um, get the show in the can, but thank you for coming up with the idea. Cause I think it's, I mean, this has been a brilliant last couple of weeks. You know, Chris, one of the things that I, I hope, you know, Mick said that we're 88 years old and uh, but the truth be told, I really do. I'd love to live long enough to where we live in a society where we no longer have the biases and the racial unrest and, and different things. And that if all of us as human beings could see everyone as people and be treated equally, regardless of color, race, where they're from, how they speak, mm -hmm. um, the God I believe in, I think, wants that. And I think it's up to us as people to make it happen. And we've got to throw aside all of our, our prejudices that we're fed or, or heard from other people and judge mm -hmm. people equally. I have a lot of black friends. I love them. They're equal. And I think we need to uh, to just get to that point. I hope I live long enough. I, I But based on some of the things over the last few years, I don't think it can be something that's going to happen. And I keep praying every day that it does. And this was a subject I thought was important because I really do think that the AWA treated these wrestlers with the utmost respect and, mm -hmm. and having witnessed wrestling all those years, I saw firsthand that they were never treated as second class citizens or less than they were, or as somebody who shouldn't be paid as much. Um, I think that, and I pointed out that Sailor Art Thomas thing, Vern paid him more than the Crusher. And that's a fact I know personally happened. Um, if anybody, the Crusher could have been upset, but Vern took care of Sailor Art. So God bless you for letting us do it, Chris. I think this was important. And we were treated to some real talent and thank all those wrestlers mm -hmm. for what they had to endure. And I hope going forward, we can live in a better world. You know, and to piggyback on what George said without making it too political, I, it, it's still mind-boggling, whether it was wrestling or professional baseball or whatever, where, you know, Jackie Robinson or yes. to break the color barrier. Mm -hmm. It's just, it, it's disgusting. But, you know, it, so from a political standpoint, you know, we can talk all day long about racial inequality and, and racial injustice. But the takeaway from this as an AWA podcast is that whether it was a North-South thing or not, Vern Gagne and Wally Carbo, and I would go on to say, you know, Dick the Bruiser up in, you know, Indianapolis and Chicago treated the black wrestlers as equals, as equal talent, gave them main event spots, and uh, that's a great legacy. That is, uh, that's something to be proud of. So... Glad, glad I grew up in AWA territory as far as that's concerned. And again, to George, tip of the hat, buddy, uh, for bringing up the topic. And uh, we've lived through a lot. We saw a lot. But we had some tremendous, tremendous black wrestlers come through the, these parts. Yeah, I, this hope, I hope we live long enough to have the word discrimination gone from our vocabulary and from the dictionary. If yep. anything needs to be removed... If yeah. anything needs to be removed and changed, discrimination does. Yes, absolutely. Uh, before we wrap it up with our plugs one more time and tell everybody where uh, they can, you know, get good 
good merch, good swag, good beer. Uh, let's give some shout outs because we haven't done this because we've kind of been a little disjointed, which has been good because we've had a lot going on. Yes. So it's been a good, it's, it's been a good disjointed. So we haven't had a chance to do trivia. Well, the last one we did, uh, what, three weeks ago. I mean, George basically gave the answer. So, you know, whatever. Hey, uh, Vince McMahon blew the whistle on kayfabe. I guess I made the mistake and did it too. You could have looked at the notes. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. We have a doc. We have a document. Look at the document. Don't bother. All right. Yeah, okay. Fine, okay. fine okay. and suspend me. Go ahead. <laughs> All right, Chris. All right, so uh, um, let's get to the shout-outs here, guys. Uh, why don't you go ahead and, and uh, kick it off there, Mark, uh, Nick. My shout-out is to an old friend of mine, uh, Mike Frame. And I've known Mike since the days of Saturday night at ringside. Uh, he is one of my best friends on the planet, a regular listener to this show. I can't tell you how many times we have been up and down the roads together and talk about loyal listeners and a guy that will have our back from beginning to end of this podcast is, uh, is Mike Frame. Big Mike in St. Paul. Love you, buddy. All right. Uh, what say you, George? <clears throat> I've also got a Mike that I'm going to uh, shout out to today. My friend, Mike Wallace. Mike Wallace is a buddy of mine for the past 40 years. Uh, great friend, loyal to the end as a person. He's one of those guys that if I needed help at 3 o'clock in the morning, I could call him and he'd come to me. I just know it. He's that type of a guy. He follows our AWA Unleashed religiously. He has listened to every show. He has communicated with me his likes and dislikes or questions. He's got a ton of questions. But just as a personal friend, I think he deserves a shout out. He calls me his little brother that he never had. And I take that as a highest compliment. And I, I love him to death. So Mike Wallace, thank you for your friendship and being a supporter of our show. I love you, man. And uh, I'm going to go with uh, Derek Stark, who is a recent follower of uh, ours on Twitter, at Egomaniac. Um, I, I, I think the minute he heard one of the podcasts he instantly uh just followed and and has been just a a, a positive uh message on twitter so uh derek this goes out uh to you thanks for the f thanks for the recent follow and all of the interaction and you know we're going to keep uh giving these uh, we're going to keep giving these shout outs out um before we get going of course I have to do the the plugs uh you can see up in the right hand corner it's soda stick uh, you can see the hat that I've got. You can see the Met Center hat that Mick has got. Um, if you're looking for some Minnesota merchandise, some novelty T-shirts, uh, I've got a bunch of them. Um, check out sodastickco.com. If you're looking for something, uh, Twins, Vikings, uh, Timberwolves, Wild, Gophers, whatever, uh, use the code UNLEASHED. You get 15% off. I've used it. It works like a charm. And maybe within the next week or so i'm not gonna say any more than that but if you've if you've been in the hunt for something we may have something for you that you may want to keep in mind if you're a fan of unleashed and soda stick we'll put those two together um and uh as well hey guys we are less than a month away from our very first live show at lift bridge brewery i'm so excited we're going to be doing a live show at lift bridge brewery 
uh, before the Midwest All-Star Wrestling Card. Uh, Tap Room opens at noon, live podcast at 2, the wrestling at 3.30. You can see I put the bit.ly uh, I put the bit.ly link on the bottom right there. It's uh, that'll take you right there to it. Um, if you get a ticket, you get to see us. We're going to have some giveaways. We're going to play some games. We're going to have some trivia, just a whole bunch of stuff. Come out and have some, uh, have some beer, or if you want to have a, uh, I've got a brand new one. I can't even line it up with my camera. There we go. It's a mini donut cream soda. It's what I've been drinking uh, this morning because I, can't afford to drop a beer on the uh, carpet for the second week in a row or actually third week in a row because we broke this up into two. So uh, that's it, man. We got a lot of stuff going on. So uh, I'm, I'm excited next week, guys, Mick, uh, was this, who, who came up with the idea for, for next week? Was it you who came up with it? Because I know we've got a, a fun one. The tag teams. Yeah. Was that you? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Definitely. I'll right. take- we're gonna we're gonna give Mick we're gonna give Mick the the credit for this because George send came up with this one. Send me the money. Ah, okay. Don't look around. Don't look around, Tub. Send me the money. Hey, if that beer you're drinking, that donut beer you're drinking, Mick could take it if it was just the donuts. Hey, it's not it's not beer. It's not, it's not alcohol. It's not alcoholic. So if you got kids uh, that want to come out and you want to have some pop. There you go. Yeah, Ridge has got some great. They've got different types. I've never had a mini donut cream soda, dude. This this stuff is what is the kids would say. It's the it's the the cat's meow, as the kids would say. What kids from the thirties? What do you the the cat's meow? I just want to point something out about you, Tubbs. Every time we we mention money and you're looking around like a you Uh know like a housefly. I know for a fact that when you spilled that drink a couple of weeks ago, you just replaced the carpet. You didn't bother cleaning it up. You know, just went into those deep coffers of yours and replaced the carpet. I know it. I know it for a fact, and so does George. No offense, guys. I have to go jump into my pile of money like Scrooge McDuck.